I came to know God at a pretty young age. Probably, I think it was like after summer camp or some sort of like event. I'm on this like summer camp high. And I remember praying a prayer in Omega and saying like, God, use me, like use me in whatever way. And that was when um, the next day I started to lose the function in my legs and hands. So um, it was freshman year, and all of a sudden I see this this beautiful blonde girl, and uh, she has the best laugh. And, and so I just remember. It's the worst. No, it's the best. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> and I see Brittany, and I'm like, who is this lady? And so just thinking freshman year that that is a woman that I want to marry. Um, I didn't know what it was about it, but I, I just told myself it's like I want to marry her. <laughs> but. But, I dated all your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I grew up and I was uh, I was part of a bigger family. Early on, like my mom would have us read Bible verses, so I was inundated with Christianity. But as I matured in, in high school, especially, I wasn't really seeing people living a life that looked like Christ. You were different, Brittany. The way you carried yourself was everything that I wanted to be. When she got uh, multiple sclerosis, I think there were 60 kids in our class. So when anyone gets sick, uh, you take notice. You miss school a couple times um, throughout your sophomore and junior year, but I remember her never missing soccer. So the summer after senior year, we spent a lot of time together, played games and just foosball, ping pong. We're very competitive people. We'd spent all summer together and she'd asked me, where is this going? Immediately in my head, I think, it's leading to marriage, and, and I freaked out. Looming over my head, I was thinking, she has multiple sclerosis, you know, till death do us part. I think at the time, I wasn't able to process all that information. How I responded was just not dealing with it, just uh, running away, running away and, and, and that hurt. I was playing baseball for Chabot College, and my brother was going to join the Marine Corps. All of a sudden, I get a phone call on my phone, and it's my brother's number. I pick up, and I hear this voice. Hey, is this Mike? And I'm like, yes. He's like, this is Staff Sergeant Verhoff. And I, I go into the to the recruiting station. Like They kept on mentioning, we just want to see if you qualify for the military. And so they phrased me going to the MEPS, which I don't even know what it stands for, but it's where I guess you enlist. I thought it was a medical evaluation. And so I went to go get medically evaluated. And next thing I know is I was swearing in. <laughs> so I just remember, at least it's only four years. Well, then they're like, oh, it's a six-year contract. And the next thing I'm like, well, it's only two more years. When I was in boot camp, Brittany sent me a letter. Hope came back. I, I didn't care whatever happened with your health or whatever. I was ready. Now I could count the cost and be like, God, this woman is worth everything because I, I need her. So I invited Brittany to the Marine Corps ball and we really hit it off. From there, I think that's the first time we held hands like this. But you told me um, that we couldn't date at first when I had asked you out. And you said, you're not a spiritual leader. And so I thought to myself, oh, I will be a spiritual leader. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't really know what to do other than start going to church. And so Brittany was attending Three Crosses. So I said, I'll go to Three Crosses. I was at one of my annual trainings for the Marine Corps up in Bridgeport. I was up on this rock face and there's these two rivers that were just like over like a meadow. And I just remember being at the annual training and just being like, this is where I'm gonna get engaged to Brittany. 
I was 22, he was 21. I wouldn't have it any other way. No. Like we grew each other up. We got married here at the church and uh, we had the reception off Alcosta and the big stress was just the, the looming, deployment. what was it, the deployment that was looming over. That first year of marriage, I was kind of a clingy wife just because I didn't want him away because I knew what was coming. I knew what was coming. We were married for one year and then he got deployed and he was pretty much gone for the second year of our marriage. Yeah. And so he left on my birthday. There's definitely a lot of fear of, you know, I'm going to combat. Um, 2007, Iraq was a violent place and really trusting in God yeah. and being in war. You know, this was a building block for, I think, what Brittany was going to go through this year. So after I got back from Iraq, um, I decided to go to college and I went and got my degree. And then after that, uh, we started a family. Um, we have two beautiful daughters, uh, Sadie, she's four. And then Harper, she's two. They're, they're full of energy and full of, full of life. Maybe too much full of life. <laughs> Crazy. say January 2018 um, you just had two children I just remember you starting to tell me that you don't feel yourself um, when I went to the the doctor and they pulled up her her MRI results and they put her brain on this on the screen and there was visible evidence of, of lesions in the brain it had been a while since I had talked about my MS it's kind of like living with a grizzly bear in the room and you're trapped in a room and you just want to like keep it at bay and pretend it's not there. Hearing from a doctor that around 20 years, a lot of people go into this thing called secondary MS, which just kind of means you just get more and more disabled. And to me, that was like a knife to the heart. Like I just now finally had kids. I am so young still and I want to coach soccer with them. And I love hiking. I'm a personal trainer. I teach corporate fitness. All these things are just crumbling. And, um, on top of then what started happening to my body physically, um, they got, must have gotten the MRI scans right at the beginning of the attack because from then on out, and then just a matter of days, my body just went down. I can't remember things. I can like literally forget your name. I could just, person I've known for years. And then just weakness, you know, I was falling. Honestly, it's very painful when I wake up. It feels like someone's beat me up while I've ran a marathon. And that's how I start the day. And I have two kids, I have to push myself. I have to go on. I wasn't able to be in the sun this whole past year. I'm still not able to. And it's so hard because I look healthy. I've been put on so many different medications as well. I was starting to have these crazy depressive thoughts, like almost like I shouldn't even be living. Mike's attractive and we have good girls. Here, find someone and it would be better. And it, it kind of came out of the blue. There was no like warning. There were many a nights where I just got very little sleep, just just crying in my back room, just 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 praying to God for strength. I mean, His words just just speaking to me of of just a little longer, my son, just a little longer. Just a little longer, my son. Just a little longer. There's hope in that phrase, but at the same time, that's one of those phrases that, that's terrifying. 
because it's a phrase that, that leads to the next phrase, which is, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Which leads to the final phrase, I gotta get out. I gotta get out. I gotta get out. You ever felt like that? Just trying to hold on for one last season, just trying to hold on for one more week. If I could just make it till summer, if I could just make it through this project, if I could just make it through to the end of this and get past this deadline, then I'll be okay, but then it's not okay. And so it spirals and spirals and eventually we come to these places where we say, I just, I can't do this anymore. We've been in this series for the last four weeks called Your Brain is Trying to Kill You and we've established that. We've established that God is trying to heal us. Well, we've talked a little bit about how to release control of the thoughts that consume us and cling to God instead, how to let go of our anger, let go of our bitterness, let go of our rage, and and learn how to abide in Jesus instead. And yet sometimes we come to this place in our journey where something snaps and it just feels like, I can't do this anymore. I know that as Christians, we're not supposed to feel like this. We're not supposed to get to these points that we just feel done, that we want to get out, that that things are broken and we can't fix them, and and yet we do. Christians get to places where they have dark thoughts. Christians get to places where they just want to escape. Christians get to places where they start telling stories in their heads of what they're going to say to their boss when they quit or what they're going to say to their husband when they leave or what they're going to say to their kids when they say that they're not going to be their dad anymore. We start telling these stories in our heads because something in our brain is telling us it's time to run, get out. This is too much for me. I see a story like Mike and Brittany's and can see how someone would start to feel the angst, the, the pain, the burden of being helpless, a feeling like there's no way out of here. This morning as we close our series, I want to talk about what do we do when we feel like it's time to run? What do we do in those moments when we feel like we just have to beeline away from the experience that we're in and get out at all costs? What do we do when our brain says, get out of here now? And to do this, I want to look at a passage of Scripture that makes me a little bit relieved to see that people in the Bible, even really good people in the Bible, experience the same feeling. It's a story about a prophet named Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah has just had an amazing mountaintop experience, kills a bunch of false prophets, and then receives word that the queen of the land wants him dead, and all he can do is be consumed with this thought that he needs to get out of the country now. And so Elisha starts to run and he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. And this is 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll read for us verses one through five and then we'll tell the story of the rest of the chapter as we walk through this text today. Now Ahab told Jezebel, the queen, everything Elijah, the prophet, had done and how he had killed all the false prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. 
Take my life. I am no better off than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. The last couple of weeks as I've been studying this passage, I couldn't get this image of Forrest Gump out of my head. Remember this? You ever see that movie? It's a classic movie. You've got to see Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is a, a man who's known for running. Now, there's a scene early in the movie where he's wearing these leg braces. I think he had polio or something, and he had these braces on his legs, and these bullies come, and they're throwing rocks at him and making fun of him, and they start to attack him, and his friend Jenny yells, run, Forrest, run! And he starts to run, right? And his braces fly off his legs and he starts running. It flash forwards a couple years down the road and the same bullies come in this truck and they start chucking rocks at him and Jenny says, run Forrest, run. And he just starts like running down the road and the truck is chasing him and he veers off into this field and the truck is trying to find him and he's beating this truck down through the field. He jumps a fence onto this football field and he's like, and he passes the quarterback, he passes the running backs, he passes all the people out on the field, right? And he's just going, and all the coaches are watching this guy fly down the field thinking, who is this guy, and how is he running so fast? And he runs, and he runs, and he runs. This is the image we get of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, where he's so excited on the mountaintop, he beats a chariot down the mountain to Jezreel, and then he finds out that Jezebel wants him dead, and he's like, I'm out of here, and he just starts running. And if, you're, if this was a movie, they'd put up a map of Israel on the screen with a little X where he started up on Mount Carmel and then he just runs past the Sea of Galilee. He runs down the Jordan River Valley. He runs past the Dead Sea and he's going and he's going and he's going and he's going. He's running for his life until he runs out of steam. Finally, like 60 miles, I think, from his starting point, he, he tells the servant, stay here and he walks for a day into the wilderness and he falls under this bush. And in the shade of this bush, kind of like Jonah, right? Last week we talked about him. He prays that God would take his life. He says, take my life, Lord. I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm done. Have you ever been done? You've finished pushing so hard you can't do it anymore. Trying to keep it together for so long and you just feel like, I, I have to get out of here. You come to a place and you close the door and you're crying and you finally stop crying and you're just like, I can't, I'm, I'm done. And we know that Elijah was physically exhausted, obviously, but he's more than that. He is spiritually exhausted. He is emotionally exhausted. He's at the end of the line. We get to catch a glimpse of his mental and emotional state a few paragraphs later when he finally tells the Lord how he's feeling and, and we get to see revealed that Elijah is a lot more than just physically tired. This is in verse 14. He, he cries out from the depths of his heart. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Just done. So he gets under the bush and says, God, I, it's time for me to leave this planet. And he falls asleep. This is a movie. This would be the moment where he wakes up and wonders, am I in heaven? And he's still in the desert. He re regains consciousness and, and there's this 
food cooking over some coals and there's an angel there. It says, Elisha, eat something. So he like eats the food and then he falls asleep again. He wakes up again and the angel's there and there's more food on the coals. He says, eat something, eat something. And so he, he starts to eat. And we see that in this dark place, in this hard space, in the lament of his soul, God has showed up and is starting to give him some nourishment and restore some vitality to his body and to his soul. It's interesting, if you look at the whole Old Testament, you see that there are times all over the place where people find themselves dying under bushes and then God shows up. I think of Genesis when a woman has been discarded by her whole extended family and she goes off into the wilderness with her child and puts him under a bush so he might just die out there and in that place God sees her and he restores her. We see Jonah last week under that bush up at the top of the mountain and it withers and he's like, oh God, I'm angry enough to die. I think that's how he said it. And God taps on his shoulders and he tries to meet with him there. We see Elijah out in the desert right here in 1 Kings 19 and he's languishing under a bush. He's praying to die, but instead of killing him, God starts feeding him. And I think there's something beautiful in seeing that in those moments where we are just exhausted, God loves to meet us in those moments. God loves to find us when we're at the end of our rope and God loves to bring nourishment to us when we feel like we're just done with everything in this world. If you were here on Easter, we had a testimony sunrise service that was unbelievable, right about the same kind of story. There was a young lady in our college ministry who a while back was just at wit's end. Circumstances in her life were just compiling on each other and she was going through some mental illness stuff and some, just some hardship in life and she finally got to this point where she said, you know, I can't do this anymore and she made plans to take her own life. She got in her car and she started driving to the place where she was going to commit suicide and as she was driving to that place, her car broke down and she pulled over to the side of the road and just started crying. As she's crying there, someone knocks on the window of her car. Says, are you okay? She's bawling. They're like, it's okay, your car just broke down, we'll get you off the freeway. She's like, no, I'm trying to kill myself, I can't even do this right. And the guy says, you know what, I think God might have sent me here to pray for you. And so he meets with her while she's crying in her car and prays that God would restore her. And she gets off the freeway. She goes back home and she gets on the internet. She finds our church. Then she comes up to our college group and she meets Jesus. God has this way of, of meeting with us when we're at wit's end, of finding us in the moments of despair in our lives and bringing nourishment to our soul. And that's what he's doing with Elijah here is he's feeding him. He's almost hand feeding him saying, don't die yet, stay with me. I'll bring you back to life again. Just trust me. Yet Elijah, if you've ever been in this situation, you know this, Elijah was more than just physically tired. He wasn't just hungry. He was done. He was emotionally exhausted. He was spiritually exhausted. This even comes out as God shares with him why he's feeding him on that day. When, when he feeds him, God says, get up and eat in, in verse seven, for the journey is too much for you. It's too much. You ever feel like your journey is too much for you? You expect that God would say, Elijah, get up, it's not that bad. Hey, get up, Elijah, you got this. Come on, Elijah, get up. Go back home, go run your race. I'll give you some food, you're fine. God says, Elijah, get up and eat. Your, your journey's too much for you. 
It's too, this is too much. You can't do this. You need some food. You need some nourishment. You need some sustenance because what you're carrying is too much for you. As believers in Jesus, it is possible to get to a place in life where you are exhausted because the journey that God has put you on is too much for you. And we always say, God's not gonna give you more than you can handle. That's not true. That's nowhere in the Bible. God gives us more than we can handle all the time. Elijah has been given more than he can handle and God doesn't come and say, come on, Elijah, I'm not gonna give you anything you can't handle. Get back out there. God says, get up and eat. This is too much. Elijah's 60 miles or whatever from home. He's down in Beersheba out in the desert. And God starts feeding him. And we would expect that God would feed him, that he'd get him back on his feet, that he'd put his arm around him and say, okay, let's go back home, come on. But that's not what God does. God, God feeds him, God puts his arm around him in a sense in that way. And yet God does not send him back north. God empowers him to keep going south. It's like as we read this text, Elijah knows something and God knows something that we don't know about Elijah's journey. Right, we read this and we think he's just running away from his problems, that he's forced gumping it away from what's happening up in Jezreel, up on Mount Carmel, up with Jezebel up there. But Elijah knows and God knows that Elijah is not running away. Elijah is running towards something. We find out soon that Elijah is running towards Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, down even farther south than where he is. Mount Horeb is the place where Moses met with God when he spoke through the burning bush. Mount Horeb is the place that was filled with the fire and the lightning and the rage, right, and the glory of God as Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments. Mount Horeb is the place in Deuteronomy, uh, the, the very beginning of Deuteronomy, when the Israelites had wandered for 40 years in the desert, and God says to them, okay, it's time for a new journey. Now go to the promised land. Mount Horeb in the Old Testament was where the presence of God dwelt and where God met with his people. And God knew something and Elijah knew something that we don't know when we read this text for the first time, which is that Elijah is not running away from God. He's not running away from life or away from his circumstances. Elijah has snapped. He's at wit's end. He's exhausted. He has no hope left. And so he's just using all the energy he has left to try to get to the presence of God. And so when God meets him on the road, God says, you're gonna make it. You're gonna make it to my presence. You're gonna make it to my mountain. You're gonna make it to face to face with me. You're going to make it. Here's some food. Keep running south because you will get to meet with me. And what we learn in this text is that maybe the voice in our head that's telling us to run is not just telling us to run away. Maybe God has put something in us that's trying to tell you to run to Jesus. And maybe what you need in those moments where you feel like I need to escape my house is not to escape your family. Maybe you need to escape into the presence of God. Maybe when you're having those seasons where you feel like I just need to get out of my job, maybe you don't need to quit your job. Maybe you take a day off and go find the Lord and meet with him. Maybe in, in our soul when we feel like I just need to run, you don't need to run away. 
Maybe God is stirring in you. You need to run to me because life and health and vitality and nourishment is found in my presence. And so flee to me. Don't just run in general. Run to the Lord. Now the story we got to see this morning of Mike and Brittany is a powerful one of them wrestling with what does it mean to cling to God and cling to each other when it feels like the circumstances of life keep getting harder and harder and harder. I don't know about you, but the first time that we started talking about this video, I expected it would be one of those videos where you get to see how they pray and then God fixes everything. But most of the time in life, you don't just pray and God fixes everything, right? A lot of times, you pray and you pray and you pray and it stays the same. You pray that God would change your circumstances. He doesn't. You pray that God would change your boss. Your boss is still a jerk, right? You pray that God would change your kids. They still yell at you all day. You pray that God would change the circumstances you're in, and it seems like they just keep getting piled on you over and over and over. And so everything in us tells us you have to escape this reality. What we learn from the Elijah story is it is not time to escape our reality. That in those moments of deep despair, it's time to go find the Lord. I want to show you the next installment of Mike and Brittany's story. This has been a crazy year for them. And so I want to give us a glimpse into their journey of how they've wrestled with all of this with the Lord as they've tried to navigate this whole medical thing and life and kids and all that together. So let's watch the next little segment of Mike and Brittany's story. I just, like, at first watched a lot of TV to try and just get through and kind of, like, ignore it. And then after a few months, it just didn't go away. And so then I, like swung hard the other way and just was like, I'm gonna read my Bible. And it was almost like this works mentality. I'm gonna be so righteous and so good that like God will like shine down upon me and heal me. And neither felt right with like my soul. I heard in like a sermon, this saying from the fiery furnace when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are about ready to go in and they say, our God can save us. Our God will save us and even if he doesn't. And just that hope it brought me. Is there anything the Lord cannot do? And I would just journal that. I would start with, is there anything the Lord cannot do? It's like, run again. Is there anything the Lord cannot do? I called a bunch of my friends and I said, hey, let's all fast for Brittany and let's, um, and we're gonna anoint her with oil. And the elders came and we anointed Brittany with oil and, and nothing happened. The opportunity came where I wanted to just take Brittany away for the weekend. And we just went locally and we went to a hotel and I'm reading Hebrews. I'm just down at the pool by myself and I come across Hebrews 12. It talks about endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? We have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. When I look at that, it's just prayer and worship. You know, get on your knees and pray and lift your hands and praise God. God is treating me as a son to produce righteousness in me by discipline. I've seen a lot this year of just removing idols in both of our life and kind of realizing that my health and being active was like almost like an idol in my life. Even if things get worse, there's still hope because you're God Almighty. 
I was seeking Brittany's healing, but in the process, all of a sudden, I, I somehow stumbled upon, you know, just a fringe of who God is. It's nothing that I can do on my own. It's merely enduring and learning that God is speaking through suffering, God is speaking through discipline, and that all of a sudden he became alive. <laughs> Job, he says, I wish God would respond to me. I wish that he would answer me. And Elihu says, God does speak. He speaks in a whisper, he speaks in a dream, or maybe he speaks on a bed of suffering. And in this process, he's just become right there. He's, he's alive. Our God reigns, our God is alive. Anytime you try to put him in a box, that box gets exploded. He says, do not be anxious about anything. How do we do that? It, it's a daily struggle. I have to go to God and he's allowed this for a reason to get me to my end because then that's when he can come through. For me, like I'm a personal trainer and it's like taking away my legs. That's, that's a big blow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, almost so perfect that it's know, like, that, it's that one, must be God. With my personality, it's like the one thing that would get my attention. Yeah. This isn't over. I'm not, I'm not gonna be left here. And so even now I practice saying, God, I trust you. I'm saying it even if my heart's not necessarily there yet. And I'm trusting that God's gonna bring my heart there. How has our relationship <laughs> changed? <laughs> oh yeah, you want me to answer this question? That was wise of you. Honestly, like night and day. We're so much closer now than we've ever been. I felt that we were slowly dying before. We were drifting apart very slowly. And God used this to just allow us to be real with each other and just expose our hearts to each other and to that the two become one flesh. Yeah. It's like, that's, oh, that's, We started this series with a verse from Romans chapter 12 that said, don't be conformed to the image of this world, the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We said that, that conforming is what a child does with Play-Doh in a mold, but transformation is what a potter does with clay. And so we started this journey of how do we put our brains into the hands of God and let him mold us into who he wants us to be. As we walk through the series, as we look through these texts, as we look at the life of Elijah, as we hear these stories, I become increasingly convinced that the key to mental renewal is learning how to run to God when your brain is trying to kill you. Learning how to go to him and say, God, this brain of mine is doing this. Now what? God, I, I'm in despair. What do I do? God, I need help. Please help me. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, my, my brain is telling me this. God, what do you say? Running to him. God equips Elijah to run to Mount Horeb and, and he goes up into a cave, he spends the night and when he wakes up, an angel comes and says, okay, why are you here? And Elijah gives his speech, he says, I'm the only one left, they're trying to kill me and says, okay, hold on, God's coming and all of a sudden the earth starts to shake and a fire comes and a wind comes and it's terrifying on that mountain but God is not in any of the terrifying moments. But then the dust settles and Elijah hears a still, small voice, a whisper. And he comes out of the mouth of the cave and he covers his face. And God says, Elijah, why are you here? 
Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, killed your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. God says, Elijah, I want you to go back north. I want you to anoint Elisha as the new prophet. I want you to anoint a new king of Israel, a new king of Judah. And God starts giving him some marching orders. And you would expect that Elijah would say, no, God, that's not enough. I've got so much angst. I've got so much exhaustion. But that's not what he says. He just says, yes, sir. And he starts going again. It's like meeting with God just for a moment, hearing the voice of God for a moment is enough to sustain him, to recalibrate him, to remind him that this journey is worth taking and he can do it with God's help. As we finish this series, I want to give you a few things that you can take away. If you're a writer, you can write these things down. If you're not a writer, you can take a photo at the end. That's not cheating. Here's some things that we learn in this story and in this series. When your brain is trying to kill you, when you find yourself barely holding it together, number one, trust that God wants to meet you and sustain you. Like I said, over and over in the Old Testament, God meets with his people to bring them sustenance. Trust that. Number two, don't underestimate how much hearing from the Lord can change your perspective. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you were at wit's end and then God gave you something simple to believe. God gave you a simple word from his truth. God gave, him a, gave you a simple word from a friend or from a pastor or from the Bible. And that small thing that God said just changed your perspective on everything. Don't underestimate that. We have in the seat backs in front of you, you can look there if there's none, there's one out in Connection Center for you, but... We've got this, we've rebranded our series. Now it's called Your God is Trying to Heal You. Uh, so we decided your brain is trying to kill you is too ominous. So your God is trying to heal you. We've got these little papers that, this is not like a prescription where when you're stressed out, you pull the paper out and you just pray this prayer and now you're fine. Maybe that'll work. More than that, this is an equipping tool to hide these verses in your heart so that when your brain comes at you, God can meet with you simultaneously. Then when you're worrying, God's word can come and, and equip you in that moment. When you're stressed, when you feel like there's nowhere to turn, when you're at the end of your rope, when you feel unloved, when you feel like you're a failure, these words can come from the Lord. Don't underestimate the power. Don't underestimate how much hearing from the Lord can change your perspective. Use this as a tool to that end. And finally, the last thing today is that when your brain shouts, I need to get out, Train yourself to hear, I need to connect with the Lord instead. And when your brain says, get out of here, you're going to die, right? Say, okay, that means I need to go meet with Jesus. I, I believe strongly that you are the best person in your life to observe all that is happening to you, but you might be the worst person in your life to interpret all that is happening to you. So when life is hard and things are coming at you and you sense it, that is true, but your interpretation of that is, I need to end it, or I need to leave, or I need to quit, don't interpret it that way. Interpret those observations as saying, you know what? I think I need something from the Lord. I need to run to him. And as you run to him, he will meet you and he will sustain you and he will speak to you and his words will give you freedom and life. Your brain is trying to kill you, but your God is trying to heal you. Run to him, abide in him, and find life in his sovereign hand. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move into worship together.